the high desert of Boulder, Colorado, a mutant nexus at the base of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, about a mile above the sea level portion of the Babylon Matrix, where we are nestled just beneath the beautiful Flatiron Mountains. This is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com. Welcome to a anthology of Zap Oracle cards. This is basically part two. Part one was uh, the path of the sacred highlighter, but um, there's no reason that they're not in any particular order, uh, except I've picked out ones that seem most suitable for reading out loud. And so you could start with part two just as easily as part one. And this uh, collection begins with Beginner's Mind, which is card number 534. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Suzuki Roshi said that. <clears throat> a beginner's mind is open, curious, even odd by what is, and free of preconceptions, expectations, and prejudices. Beginner's mind is like the mind of a small child that discovers things anew and is filled with wonder and amazement. A beginner's mind led me into the creation of this card and generated a new discovery about beginner's mind. While looking through some photos of my computer, I came upon a rather blurry image of a four-year-old boy named Indigo, he's eight now, and immediately said to me, beginner's mind. Instantly, I recognized that this should be an oracle card, and the next moment googled beginner's mind. The first article I opened was a lecture on beginner's mind by Abbas Zinke Blanche Hartman, and I immediately discovered an amazing synchronicity. Her illustration of beginner's mind was also about a boy named Indigo. And this is what she wrote. <clears throat> Earlier this week, I was having lunch with Indigo, our small child at City Center. He saw an object on the table and got very interested in it. He picked it up and started fooling with it, looking at it, putting it in his mouth, and banging it on the table, banging on the table with it, just engaging with it, without any previous idea of what it was. For Indigo, it was just an interesting thing, and it was a delight to him to see what he could do with this thing. You and I would see it and say, it's a spoon, it sits there and you use it for soup. It doesn't have all the possibilities that he finds in it. Watching Indigo, you, could, you can see the innocence of what is it. Children begin to lose that innocent quality after a while, and soon they want to be the one who knows. We all want to be the one who knows, but if we decide we know something, we are not open to further possibilities anymore. And that's a shame. We lose something very vital in our life when it's more important to us to be one who knows than it is to be awake to what's happening. After I read this passage, I recognized that synchronicity stepped in to offer a discovery about beginner's mind. When you are in beginner's mind, the cosmos is more likely to offer you instructive synchronicities, and you are better able to experience the amazing parallelism between inner and outer worlds. Outer worlds. When you engage the world with beginner's mind, the parallelism intensifies and the world becomes your teacher. Consulting an oracle requires beginner's mind. It is not in your control or anyone's what card or hexagram or rune comes up. Oracles are based on synchronicity, based on the principle that the oracle this artifact of the outside world, can offer uncanny parallels to what is happening in your inner world. On the other hand, when you defer to experts, or when you study the world through a pre-structured syllabus offered by dry academia, 
Then you tend to see through a glass darkly, and the living tissue of the world recedes from your gaze. One of the key tendencies that keeps us from beginner's mind is the deference and servility to outside authority that we are conditioned to accept throughout life. It doesn't always occur to us that we can take a fresh and independent look at a subject, even though experts have arrived at established conclusions about it. The power of the beginner's mind to see through to what's really happening is illustrated by Hans Christian Andersen's classic fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Wikipedia summarizes the tale as follows. An emperor of a prosperous city who cares more about clothes than military pursuits or entertainment hires two swindlers who promise him the finest suit of clothes from the most beautiful cloth. This cloth, they all tell him, is invisible to anyone who is either stupid or unfit for his position. The emperor cannot see the non-existent cloth, but pretends that he can for fear of appearing stupid. His ministers do the same. When the swindlers report that the suit is finished, they dress him they dress him in mime. The emperor then goes on a procession through the capital showing off his new clothes. During the, the course of the procession, a small child cries out, but he has nothing on. The crowd realizes the child is telling the truth. The emperor, however, holds his head high and continues the procession. One of the things that blocks us from beginner's mind is allowing others to stand between us and perceiving the world for ourselves. Other eclipsing forces that keep us from beginner's mind are habits of perception, prejudices, blind spots, and tunnel vision. Cognitive psychology recognizes schemas, classic patterns of emotional reactivity that can perpetually color how we perceive reality. These schemas include abandonment fear, low self-esteem, deprivation, and entitlement. Many people look at the world through an unexamined template that they lay over everything, such as I never get my fair share, or life sucks and then you die. Beginner's mind means you are not imposing such blinding templates on what you perceive. Another way of killing beginner's mind is to be in a state of resisting the Tao. A simple way to tell if you are resisting the Tao is offered in A Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler, which is another one of my documents and podcasts. But the ego, like a nervous backseat driver clutching an imaginary steering wheel in its sweaty white-knuckled grip, never trusts that non-linear path of the creative so completely out of its control. Categories presented as a list of gerunds that indicate the ego resisting the Tao and or trying to assert imaginary control over it include wanting, wishing, worrying, hoping, fearing, dreading, desiring, envying, comparing, supervising, lifeguarding, judging, complaining, self-pitying, striving, anticipating, expecting, pre-structuring, contriving, forcing progress, hedging, rationalizing, clinging, and doubting. This same document points out ways to get past other classic repressions of beginner's mind. Probably the most common blockage is an ego-mind alliance in the ruling position in our psyche rather than our global intuition. Beginner's mind is an intuitive mind, a mind that enjoys being in a state of creative play rather than a mind that, with grim determination, is looking for the means to a particular end. The beginner's mind is alert to the numinous, to what lights up in our psyche as having an uncanny significance, and is willing to follow that numinous object down the rabbit hole and find out how deep it really goes. And, and for more on the uh, numinous, you can see 
or listen to the podcast, uh, The Path of the Numinous, Living and Working with the Creative Muse. The beginner's mind is comfortable with paradox and doesn't try to flatten the world into absolutisms and fundamentalisms. See dynamic paradoxicalism, the anti-ism-ism. Finally, I'll close with a paragraph from the synchronistic lecture on Zen where I discovered the second boy named Indigo. In her poem, When Death Comes, Mary Oliver has a few lines that say, When it's over, I want to say I have been a bride married to amazement. I have been a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. This is beginner's mind. I have been a bride married to amazement. Just how amazing the world is, how amazing our life is, how amazing that the sun comes up in the morning, or that the wisteria blooms in the spring. Unquote. A bride married to amazement, a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. Can you live your life with that kind of wholeheartedness, with that kind of thoroughness? And that was, uh, again, the paragraph on the lecture on Zen. Consider this a propitious time to be bride and bridegroom of amazement and empower yourself with beginner's mind to take the eternal voyage of discovery. Okay, and the next card also relates to the value of a non-chronological youthfulness. It's called Late Bloomer, Valuing Prolonged Adolescence. That's card number 536. Valuing prolonged adolescence sounds counterintuitive, I know. Indeed, our culture abounds with examples of the worst sort of prolonged adolescence, such as narcissistic baby boomers desperately and pathetically trying to hold on to the things of youth. I have often quoted the Mary Renault character who said, Man must make his peace with the seasons or the gods will laugh at him. It can be dangerous to cling to the pure eternus, the archetype of the eternal youth. And yet there is also the creative, inspiring, and metamorphic side of the prolongation of adolescence, a more hidden side of the paradox of prolonged youth that also needs to be honored. From an evolutionary and developmental point of view, it is often an advantage to be a late bloomer. A general trend we see in nature is that the more complex the organism and the more potential it has for individuality, the longer it needs to develop. Baby spiders and scorpions seem to come into the world already fully locked and loaded with everything they need to know to be spiders and scorpions. They seem to have pre-installed operating systems of instincts, allowing them to function as miniature adults as soon as they hatch. Spiders and scorpions are, are not late bloomers. They don't spend years wondering what they will be when they grow up. Spiders and scorpions seem to hit the ground running without the slightest doubt or insecurity about who they are supposed to be and what they are supposed to do. They are also hardwired and mechanical compared to more individualized creatures like us. They are prodigies of self-sufficiency, competence without training, action without hesitation. Adolescence for spiders and scorpions doesn't stretch for decades into middle age. To a person of painful self-consciousness, like J. Alfred Prufrock, to be an action-oriented exoskeleton seems an enviable thing. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling along the floors of silent seas. And that is, uh, of course, the poem by T.S. Eliot, J. Alfred Prufrock, or the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But the lifestyle of ragged claws scuttling along across the floors of silent seas may not be as enviable as J. Alfred imagines. For the late bloomer, 
The path of the fully formed man of action may seem enviable, the glamour of an instinct-driven life ensconced in an attractive exoskeleton, the imagined lives of square-jawed muscular types stepping out of glossy magazine pages and action films. And yet there is much to be said for being a mutating introvert, not yet identified with a glossy exterior on a path of unhesitating action. The more evolved animals seem to take longer before they are ready to hit the ground running. Human development can slow and stagnate, stretch out too long, but it can also end too soon. And we have the prematurely adult types, those whose identity has been locked and loaded since middle school or high school. They are not experiencing prolonged adolescence. They are formed adolescent types prolonging themselves into stagnant adulthood. But some highly individualized mutants retain the metamorphic aspect of adolescence and have not fully formed. Some inner will for transformation will not allow them to rigidify into a finished adult form, even though it might be decades since biological adolescence should have ended. This type of late blooming has its painful drawbacks, but also its developmental advantages. The longer and more labyrinthine the path of development, the more individualized and novel may be the results. The world is overpopulated with finished exoskeletal types. The exoskeletal folks have already been locked and loaded with fundamentalisms and absolutisms that tell them everything they think they need to know. Exoskeletal folk are busy scuttling forth, acting out. But the world also needs more interiorized folk, the personifications of evolution's attempts to experiment with the human form, those who live in prolonged states of metamorphosis. Consider this a propitious time to allow the metamorphosis of prolonged adolescence and honor the path of a late bloomer. And the next card also relates to the theme of not achieving premature closure. This is card 635, the inestimable value of unsolved problems. The serious problems of life, this is a quote from Carl Jung, the serious problems of life are never fully solved. If it should once appear that they are solved, this is the sign that something has been lost. The meaning and design of a problem seems not to lie in its solution, but in our working at it incessantly. This alone preserves us from stultification and petrification. Carl Jung. There is nothing you can learn from as much as problem as a problem you cannot fully solve. Unsolved problems can be some of the greatest tormentors, but also the greatest teachers. Unsolved problems keep the mind hungry and the eyes open. Small people have found premature final answers to great unresolved questions. Absolutisms and fundamentalisms abound for those who do not have the inner strength to live with unsolved problems. Many of the greatest discoveries and epiphanies have occurred as partial solutions to problems never fully solved. The ego, of course, desires closure, but some life problems are only closed with the coffin lid. Our desire to pursue unresolved problems is a major part of what keeps us alive and searching. One of the greatest life skills and signs of maturity is the ability to live with ambivalence, ambiguity, and unresolved problems. As Deng Ming Dao says, he's a modern Taoist sage, uh, never underestimate the power of a partial solution. 
It takes wisdom, courage, and inner strength to live with unresolved problems and to resist trying to close them prematurely. Consider this a propitious time to take another look at the unsolved problems you live with and recognize their inestimable value to your soul. Allow your desire to solve them to draw you into the misty labyrinth of life. And as you wind your way through the twists and turns, pause to appreciate some of the partial solutions and remember that the journey is the destination. And for more on the value of of not falling into solved problem mode or absolutism mode, you could see dynamic paradoxicalism. Next is card 512, As Good As It Gets. I sent my parents the movie As Good As It Gets, and they got a lot from it. In a letter my mother wrote, The title intrigues me. I've been using it a lot with different interpretations depending on my mood. As good as it gets, count your blessings. We're lucky, nothing to complain about. As good as it gets, or can get, it won't get any better. Probably will gradually get worse. As good as it gets, don't try to conquer or improve things. It can't be done. Accept it. As good as it gets, it's the best time to make the effort to correct mistakes and take positive steps. Don't wait for a better time to start. Consider this a propitious time to consider the many senses of as good as it gets and which ones best apply to the present situation. Next card is number 467, Lights Through the Veil of Darkness. Even in the midst of veils of darkness, points of light may be seen. If you're open to them, you may notice moments of compassion amidst the noisy busyness of human transaction. There are moments when the world reveals its inner beauty and novelty, and categories like good, bad, natural, and artificial Fall away as you behold the beauty of suchness, the implied magnificent precision of the whole phantasmagoria of light and dark forms coming at you throughout human incarnation. If you see only darkness, then your vision is woefully incomplete. The scintillations of light all around may be offset more brilliantly by the surrounding veils of darkness. Next card is number 436, Adapting to Life in the Babylon Matrix. And there's a glossary of some of my special terms on the homepage of my site and defining things like Babylon matrix, mutant, singularity, archetype, and so forth. Many people don't feel entirely comfortable with the present era. Some long for a simpler, greener realm or otherwise feel um, out of place in the Babylon matrix. In a splinter in your mind, I wrote, we also have a part of our intuition that registers a general wrongness about this world. Hamlet says, this time is out of joint, and something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Some of the most memorable spoken lines of our era are from the first Matrix movie. There is a splinter in your mind you can't get out, and it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. The Matrix and Tolkien's mythology share a belief with the ancient Gnostics that the realm we have incarnated in is largely a diabolical deception or intrinsically corrupted plane. Tolkien wrote in his notes, but nothing, as has been said, utterly avoids the shadow upon Arda, earth, or is wholly unmarred so as to proceed unhindered upon its right courses. In a letter, Tolkien wrote, but certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, 
its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. When we perceive the darkness of this realm, we are not always altogether filled with despair, because we have both past and future memories of another plane of reality. As a character in a fallen world, in Stephen King's Dark Tower series says, before falling into an abyss, Go then, there are other worlds than these. Users of this work will tend to be mutants, round pegs, and a major life issue is the Babylon Matrix as a toxic landscape of square holes. For the introverted mutant, the Babylon Matrix makes obnoxious and overwhelming demands on our time and attention. You reach out toward the form of magic the BM presents you with, high-tech gadgets, and often find yourself immersed in frustrating minutiae, huge instruction manuals, tech support issues, etc. To obtain crucial resources you need, you need to survive requires token counters called money, and to obtain this money you may need to spend vast amounts of your time and energy laboring in a square hole of some sort. The talents that derive from your essence, and the pursuits that are intrinsically connected to your great work, are often unrecognized and undervalued by the BM. While it would celebrate you as a success if you were really good at chucking a football or managing a stock portfolio. The most classic way to adopt, sorry about the background noises, uh, you know this is not a sound studio. The most classic way to uh, adapt to square hole predicament is to enter the victim reality tunnel. Evidence to support the victimized worldview will be incredibly easy to find. Complaining, one of the main recreations of the victim timeline, will be supported by an endless cascade of complaint-worthy situations, objects, people, and events. On this path, you will play out many disassociative strategies, such as addictions, in your pursuit of the victim nirvana of being comfortably numb. Another way to adapt to the square hole predicament is denial. For example, you can enter the reality tunnel of the positivity Nazis, who believe that they create their own reality, and that through the secret and the power of positive thinking, they can change every sow's ear into a silk purse. And for a more serious critique of you creating your own reality, uh, absolutism, you can see dynamic paradoxicalism. Much of the content of this website is an attempt to define and express the ways of adapting to life in the Babylon matrix that work for me. In Mechanical Resistance Matrix, also a document and podcast, I present a warrior stance for dealing with a square-holed realm. A warrior with a capital W is not a mercenary, but someone who seeks to efficiently serve transpersonal aims. The transpersonal aim should be in accord with your true will and your great work, the stuff that you came here to do and that you will remember well in your deathbed. And you could see other writings um, in the warrior section of this site. For philosophy and practical advice on how to fulfill your great work, see the path of the Nimbus, living and working with the creative muse. The warrior path does not mean a grim struggle against overwhelming odds, a square hole suck and then you die timeline. In order not to fall into such depressive worldviews, it is crucial to recognize that you are an interdimensional traveler and that the Babylon Matrix is not the only realm you travel through. You could see a guide to the perplexed interdimensional traveler for more on that theme. If scarcity of money or other resources seems like the dominant thing you are struggling to adapt to, see resource fluctuations happen, working with scarcity and abundance. Finally, here are three excerpts from 
Friends Don't Let Friends Incarnate in the Babylon Matrix, another podcast. Always remember that there are timelines in the affairs of a mutant which, entered when portals open, lead on to fortune. Omitted in all the voyage of our incarnation is bound in shallows and in miseries. And oh, how can one ever tell how rich the Babylon Matrix is in shallows and in miseries? Intricate networks of stagnant, toxic rivulets seeping into fluorescent cubicles. Scheduled incarnations set to run by clock and currency. The folk that seem to dwindle with every nervous step. Hungry ghosts hurrying, then hobbling on the path of winding down. In such a darkly trending part of the multiverse are we now afloat, and we must seize the portals when they open, or lose the timelines of sparkly green fire which lead us to other worlds than these. There are other paths than those of shallow misery, but they are easier to see when you realize the Babylon Matrix is only one of a multiverse of dreams. But what a noisy, bustling, buzzing, in-your-face sort of dream it is, the dream of a cyclops with one blinded eye, careening drunkenly down the darkened, skull-shadowed avenues of history, while headlines blare, this dream is an emergency, grasp it with white knuckles. As the race car drivers say, don't look at the wall if you're heading toward it, look at where you want to go. And where I want to go is through those shimmering planes of improbable coincidence, through the interstices of the web, sparkling constellations of thought forms and images encoded as zeros and ones, indeterminate autonomous zones where fellow mutants disassociate from Babylon Matrix, shapeshift and shimmer iridescently with possibilities. I seek to follow timelines less traveled by, but where there are promises to keep, and many paths and errands meet, and I avoid the timelines of white powders which may seem lovely dark and deep, but are where withering souls go to creep. The next card is called uh, Finding Your Way Through the Fog. It's card number 402. Recently I heard someone who claimed to have contact with the other side. He said that those in the afterlife usually found it difficult to come back to this realm because it was like entering a thick fog of negative emotion and irrationality. Whether this is true or not, I do know that this realm often feels like it is obscured by a thick fog. Some say we are adversely affected by the fog of electromagnetic noise coming from cell phones, Wi-Fi, fluorescent bulbs, etc. Recently there was a brief blackout where I live and I felt a wonderful quieting that was more than a diminishment of acoustical noise. I find the fog of psychic noise more oppressive, and for this reason, living in large cities is difficult for me, even though I grew up in the Bronx. I like to get up in the pre-dawn hours to write, a time of day when there is less psychic noise of waking personalities in the surrounding community. There are places and times when the fog is lessened, and we need to make good use of such zones of clarity. Much of the time, the thick and heavy fog of the Babylon Matrix, whatever its source, feels inescapable. This is one of the givens of human incarnation. To find our way through the fog, we need strategies for dealing with it. Using myself as example, the fog is often created by internal perturbations, fluctuations in my brain chemistry, and the ever-changing weather systems of mood. What I eat has much to do with the thickness of the fog. If I eat heavy, highly processed food, dairy, etc., then I'm going to feel foggier. If I eat smaller portions and mostly raw foods, I tend to feel sharper. 
Similarly, vigor, vigorous exercise makes me much sharper. Working on externals, I try to avoid living in places where the fog is thicker, and I try to use the times of the day when there is more clarity to do my highest value work. There are two basic strategies implied here. Going to places where the fog is not so thick and maintaining practices to make yourself sharper so that you can be alert even in a foggy realm. Some of the thickest fogs are created by the presence of unconscious people in our environment. Sometimes the fog they create is explicit and tangible. You may be a captive audience, riding in a vehicle for example, while others who have nothing to say and who are saying it as loudly and volubly as possible. This is a direct interference with your interior processing unless you are especially gifted in being able to tune it out. Fog can be coming from the television on in the background, from the info overload of the present era with text messages, emails, phone calls, advertisements, and overheard chatter all streaming in at once. The average home has half a million objects in it these days, and many of the, those objects have computer chips in them and are subject to distracting, distracting and maddening glitches. Other times the foggy interference is subtle, more of a vague, pervasive miasma. I often find that the fog seems to creep up on me, and I'll notice that I am in a state that is lethargic, unfocused, a fungal-like fuzziness overtaking me, slowing me down, sapping the very resources I need to clear, to clear through it. To find my way through such a fog, I ask myself, what is the best use of my time right now? If something of high value is available, something I will remember well in my deathbed, then I try to prioritize whatever it is, usually a creative task, a quality human interaction, or an enriching cultural experience. In other cases, the best way to deal with the fog is to summon will and focus to work through some of the obscuring clutter of unfinished tasks and disorganized objects. Cleaning up my living space is a good use of such time. It doesn't take much mental clarity, and a messy living or working space is a huge fog source. Sometimes meditation, not doing, is the best choice as it can increase awareness of the fog of distracting thoughts and inner preoccupations. Intense cardio exercise will almost always cut through the fog for me. Spending time in nature can also be an antidote to some of the man-made fogs, a noise and clutter-free zone. This card was partly inspired by an email I just received from Brandt, a young friend with a strong commitment to consciousness. He wrote, I am back in Olympia, readjusting to the city after some travel, and I feel like the year away has given me the ability to sort of find a bit more of who I am or want to be. So the city with all of its influences and who I could or should be seems less daunting, and I feel much less anxious when I don't line up with the images currents around me. In other words, by taking a year off from college, he has a stronger sense of who he is, has progressed on the path of individuation, and therefore the prevailing zeitgeist around him cannot dominate him, cannot fully fog his inner clarity and sense of who he is. Although Brandt is finding his way through the fog, there are also lost souls, those who immerse themselves in thickening fogs. Some people are so accustomed to living in fog that they are no longer aware of it. Fog has become their default state, and they are comfortably or uncomfortably numb. Many are in medicated-slash-self-medicated fogs, 
or eclipsed by the fog of subclinical depression, which has become almost the norm in our society. In the midst of thick fog, we may become apathetic and indulgent, slouching into our various addictions. A particular danger for me is to step in the midst of fog and blame myself for it and look back regretfully. Looking back in a fog, one becomes paralyzed. When in a fog, we need to look at what is immediately before us and directly up ahead. We need to be aware that we are in a fog to be able to sharpen ourselves to deal with it. It is crucial that when we recognize we are in a fog, that we do not thicken it by wasting energy on self-criticism. To find our way through the fog takes much inner clarity, strategy, and determined focus. Card number 619, Accepting the Irregularity of Life. Life is forever confounding the left hemisphere mind, which likes clean, straight edges and linear progress. The way of the creative is an inscrutable zigzag. Life throws elbows at us when we expect the way to be free and clear. We are constantly getting results that are at cross-purposes with our agenda. At times, the irregularity of life seems messy and chaotic, at other times enchantingly unpredictable and mysteriously organic. The irregularity of others' boundaries and intentions is forever impinging on the irregularity of our boundaries and intentions. The ego would like the map to be the territory, but we are forever navigating through terrain whose spongy and irregular topography is not represented by any map. We try to orient the world to our inner compass, but find that uncharted sidetracks, diversions, distractions, serendipitous discoveries, and improbable coincidences are splitting open at helter-skelter angles all around us. Some of the most dangerous anti-life people are those who would like to regularize life. They would like people um, to fit into gender identity roles, to follow schedules, to fit in neatly into square holes. They will be only too glad to use a belt sander to bring the irregular territory of your soul into conformity with their maps. Fundamentalists, religious or otherwise, are people who reject the irregularity of life. They would like to regularize the world with their predefined precepts and sacred texts. Their distaste for the irregular often leads to violence and oppression. Some Asians say that the nail which sticks out gets pounded down. But Asia was also the source of Taoism, the religion that is both the least violent and the one with the greatest respect for the irregular. Taoist gardeners greatly prized highly irregular, asymmetrical, curvilinear, eroded river rocks. These rocks seemed like representations of the Tao, the way of things that is flowing and that creates the complex, nonlinear specificity of natural form. I once went spelunking into a twisty corkscrew of an underground labyrinth called Surprise Cave. It earned its name as I found myself in a world where there was no horizontal or vertical, and every plane of rock was at an odd angle. Water flowed over the lower plains, and there were stalagmites and stalactites and chambers where bats, like fuzzy Christmas ornaments, hung over my head. Human incarnation is like spelunking into a surprise cave. We imagine straight and smooth, well-lit highways carrying us toward our goals, but find ourselves navigating subterranean corkscrew paths that are wet and disorienting and slippery. As I learned in Surprise Cave, you must adapt to the irregularity. 
Keep your dynamic inner equilibrium as you navigate the slippery fracture planes of our unstable and mutating world. If life gives you irregular lemons, then make irregular lemonade. Consider this a propitious time to accept and work with the maddening and fascinating irregularity of life. Card number 614, Defending Your Sovereign Domain. A close friend of mine spoke to me about what he perceived as an inadequacy in him himself. When random people approach me, I often find myself cringing inside and wanting to escape. And by the way, that friend, his name is Jack Savage, and you can see um, uh, the soulful poetry of Jack Savage on the website. I told him that what he was experiencing made perfect sense to me and did not sound like an inadequacy. I believe that what he was experiencing was because of something absolutely essential. He was having an immunological response to an intrusion into his interior space, and that response was directly related to a mainline evolutionary process. I believe in teleological evolution, that there is an essential drive in evolution toward novelty, interior space, and self-awareness. The evolution of life on this planet went through a quantum shift when a process called cephalization got started. Cephalization means that nerve tissue starts to get asymmetrically concentrated in one end of an organism. This process, over myriad generations, eventually produces a head with sensory organs. This is the beginning of interiority. An organism has some sort of central nervous system or brain that allows it to build a neurological simulacrum of the outer world. This process, on planet Earth, reaches its zenith zenith with the human species, the species that, as far as we can tell, possesses the greatest interiority. And for more on this interiority, or the growth of interiority as a main line of evolution, you can see my uh, document and podcast, Pushing the Envelope, Boundary uh, Incursion into Novelty and Personal and Evolutionary Contexts. The interiority of our species has been undergoing a growth spurt in the last few thousand years. Some say that up to the time of Homer, about 2,800 years ago, there was no such thing as a private emotion. A dog, for example, does not have private emotions. If it feels an emotion, it acts it out with its body immediately. Homer marvels that Odysseus is able to disguise his feelings, and this was seen as one of his most superhuman abilities. In the 5th century, um, St. Augustine marvels that his friend Ambrose is able to read without saying the words aloud, or even mouthing them. As Augustine put it, his eyes scanned the page, and his heart sought out the meaning, but his voice was silent, and his tongue was still. Anyone could approach him freely, and guests were not commonly announced, so that often, when we came to visit him, we found him reading like this in silence, for he never read aloud. From my point of view, individualized interior space is evolution's pearl of great price. Individualized interior space is what makes us human, and is a variable that makes some human beings much more interesting than others. Uninteresting people have diminished and low-quality interior space. They seem to be formed from the outside by collective conditioning. Within, we find a hodgepodge of serial box tops, fragments of video, gossipy voices inciting inferior emotions, and so forth. But when we find someone who has a high quality of interior space, it is like being invited into a temple. 
The inner space of a genius can be like the interior of a great Gothic cathedral with vaulted ceilings and stained glass windows. It is more common, however, to find someone whose inner space is like the interior of a fluorescent-lit, run-down fast-food joint that hasn't been cleaned in a few days. So if you are consciously working on developing your individualized interior space, and it's unlikely that you'd be reading this if you weren't, then you are doing sacred evolutionary work. Your individualized interior space is your sovereign domain, and that sovereign domain must be defended at all costs. From what do we need to defend it? Your sovereign domain must be defended from outside conditioning, sensory pollution, and the intrusion of distracting influences. For example, let's say you're sitting on a park bench and writing in your journal. You're doing invaluable work in your sovereign domain. A stranger sits down next to you and decides to offer the gift of what's known as small talk. Ill-informed, highly conditioned opinions come spilling out, a cascade of inferior thought forms making a bum's rush into your sovereign domain where they prance about drunkenly like they own the place. Some people feel that courtesy demands that they continue to listen and nod their head. Because of social convention or misguided sympathy, they assume an obligation to surrender their sovereign domain to whoever demands it. I don't make that assumption and instead believe <clears throat> that appropriate boundaries are what allow me to have a sovereign domain. As Robert Frost said, good fences make good neighbors. In the present example, I would say, you'll have to excuse me, I'm working on something that just can't be interrupted. The small talker can move on and easily find others who will passively or willingly surrender their sovereign domains. I also believe in respecting the sovereign domain of others. One of the reasons I left public school teaching is that I don't want to participate in compulsory education. Someone who is unwillingly being instructed is experiencing a violation of his sovereign domain. I don't wish to enter someone's sovereign domain unless I am being invited there. For example, let's say I am riding in a car with three other people. If I choose to speak, three people will be my captive audience. I feel a moral obligation to ask myself first, is what I am about to say of sufficient information or entertainment value to these three specific others that it warrants my intrusion into their inner space? I've ridden in cars and vans while Invaluable insights and imaginal creations were happening in my sovereign domain, only to have a self-appointed entertainer um, decide to perform a loud monologue consisting of jokes at which only they laugh. My nervous system does not allow me to tune out such an in-your-face intrusion. My sovereign domain is being violated. In some cases, I may be forced to allow that. For example, let's say the entertainer is the owner or driver of the vehicle and is doing me a big favor by giving me a ride. The car is his domain and courtesy demands that he be allowed free speech in his domain. Therefore, I do the best I can to avoid captive situations where I must surrender my sovereign domain to all and sundry. But there are many situations, public transport for example, where it is very difficult to defend your sovereign domain. There is a certain type of person I call a squawker who feels that his loud, inane voice is God's gift to the social matrix. This is the sort of person who has loud cell phone conversation on a public bus, or who in the 
or at the coffee shop erupts into explosive caffeinated guffaws of idiotic laughter at various unfunny remarks. I recommend that you carry earplugs and our noise-canceling headphones wherever you're going to be traveling through collective spaces. Now, of course, some people are just much better than I am at tuning out uh, extraneous noise. And, um, but if you're like me and are not one of those, then defend your sovereign domain with noise-reducing technology. Defending your sovereign domain does not mean that you are like um, a tortoise uh, retreating into your, into your shell, however. It means you recognize that nothing will take up as much space in your sovereign domain as another human being, and therefore you need to be selective. You want to be able to invite significant others into your sovereign do domain, but it is hard to do so when you are exhausted by unwelcome intrusions. Often, however, what degrades our sovereign domain is not outside intrusion, but inner chaos. Left to themselves, most human beings are subject to what Jung called psychic entropy. Their sovereign domain becomes filled with looping negative thoughts, dark emotions, and anxieties. For this reason, almost all people, even people who say they prefer solitude, report being happier in the company of others. Most psychopathologies, compulsions, eating disorder behaviors, suicidal thoughts, etc., are more likely to happen when a person is alone. The presence of other people helps to fill the sovereign domain that would otherwise be ruled by psychic entropy. Defending your sovereign domain, therefore, does not just mean having appropriate boundaries with others. It also means being able to deal with inner forces that can compromise its integrity from within. We need to bring mindful attention to our inner realm. Often what we will find is that our sovereign domain is filled with what the I Ching calls inferiors. These are inferior subpersonalities, typically driven by wants and impulses that need to be managed by a central witness personality that defends the sovereign domain from the chaos the inferiors can cause if they are allowed to rule. If we tune into our sovereign domain, we are likely to find um, that various voices are speaking in there. Some are nagging, some are wheedling, some are worried, some just want to have fun and so forth. When you hear a voice ask, when you hear a voice, ask it to come forward onto the inner stage to step into the light of your awareness so you can see with whom you are dealing. A great metaphorical illustration of this process can be found in the live-action movie version of Morris Sendak's children cl children's classic, Where the Wild Things Are. Max is a young boy with an imaginative but also chaotic psyche that causes him to act out dark, destructive impulses that he later regrets. Horrified by something he has acted out, Max sets off by himself in a boat and journeys to an island where there are wild things, large monsters who seem to be human-animal hybrids. From this reading of the story, one of many possible interpretations, Mac has traveled to his sovereign domain, an isolated region where his wild subpersonalities reign and threaten to consume his central personality. As Freud said, where id was, let ego be. Max's central witness personality has not developed enough strength to control these inferiors, and he must journey to this isolated, unruly realm and bring some kind of order. Just as he's about to be devoured by the wild things, Max commands them, be still. They stop, and Max tells them that he is a king, 
and that they must obey him. The wild things are relieved and let him know that they desperately want a king to lead them. One of the wild things pleads, Will you keep out all the sadness? Another wild thing acknowledges Max as the creator of this island realm. You were the king and you made everything right, and you made everything right. Max gains their enthusiastic cooperation by allowing them to party and have fun. He announces, let the rumpus begin. Max is able to live safely with the wild things and even gets them to do his bidding, so long as he's able to maintain control and win their enthusiasm by keeping them busy on various creative projects and fun endeavors. But the wild things, like anyone's cohort of inferior subpersonalities, are a difficult bunch, needy and neurotic, demanding and unable to set their own boundaries. When boundaries are set for them, they have to test them and see what they can get away with. Max has trouble with this because the boundaries he sets aren't consistent. His main wild thing ally, Carol, complains, I can't trust you, everything keeps changing. Carol is giving Max crucial feedback. To be king of your sovereign domain, you need consistent boundaries and must bring stability to the realm. Carol is also afraid, as all the wild things are, of an underground noise he hears that he calls chatter. He expects Max, the king, to protect them from this perceived threat. It sounds like the threat is the inner chatter of psychic entropy. One of the more difficult wild things is Judith, who introduces herself to Max with a statement, You don't need to know me. I'm kind of a downer. She also tells Max, We want what we want. We want all things that we want. Oh, and we want no more want. Judith is a sort of subpersonality that easily feels neglected and can stir up rebellion. She asks Max, How does it work around here? Are we all the same, or are some of us better than others? You like to play favorites, huh, King? Instead of consoling Judith, Max childishly taunts her back, and she explodes into rebellion. You know what? You can't do that back to me. If we're upset, your job is to get is n- your job is not to get upset back at us. Our job is to get upset. Judith is also giving Max crucial feedback. The inferiors cannot be managed with harshness, bullying, or in any way descending to their level. According to I Ching scholar Carol Anthony, one needs to console the inferiors as a good dentist or doctor speaks to a child. Now this will hurt, but only for a moment, and then I will give you a treat, etc. To win the leadership of our inferiors, we must be seen as fair, just, and able to provide them with some fun and pleasure at times. When Max forgets these principles, his reign becomes endangered. The wild things begin to doubt that he is really the king, and once again threaten to devour him. To defend our inner process, we need to have good outer boundaries and to establish ourselves as the just and compassionate king of our sovereign domain.